Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. everybody and welcome to the show brought to you as always by the folks at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today we're joined by a Grand Slam winner, a former top 10 singles player and an Aussie queen of the court. Samantha Stosa won 40 career titles including the 2011 US Open title while winning four Grand Slam doubles crowns. Now Sam played more than 1,000 singles matches, more than 700 doubles matches where she also happens to be a former number one player in the world. Also happens Sam to be a four-time Olympian and she does hold the record for Australia's most singles Fed Cup victories. Samantha Stosa, welcome and thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. My goodness, when you read through all that, that is a lot of tennis. Can I just state the obvious right off the top? <laughs> yeah, I did play for a long time and I guess I was okay. So got some good numbers behind me. Oh, and not just the matches, I guess what we the public see, but then I think all the practice, the behind the scenes time, the hours, the years, the months, the travel, the flights. So I'm just letting it all sink in. You know, the pro tour for 23, 24 years. Started, I guess, reasonably young. Not so young compared to some of the players out there at the moment. But obviously you start through juniors and then you work your way up through the challenger circuit. So, yeah, probably since the age of 16, I'd almost been away from home more than what I was there during the year. So, yeah, a lot of flights, a lot of travel. You get to, get, I guess, be a little bit savvy with how you, you know, Mm. book things and you learn along the way. But, yeah, all uh, awesome in the end sure. I'm just curious, I haven't got this written down to ask you, but now that we're on the subject, just when you were playing and in your prime, would you hit every day and for how long? No, I mean, to be honest, it depends what time of the year it was, where you were, if you were home training or at a tournament or something like that. But like pre-seasons, for example, I always kind of made sure I had a day off each week and then certain times in a pre-season or depending, you know, where I was at, we'd really change things. Sometimes I remember one year we kind of tried to push for 10, 12 days in a row to try and emulate a Grand Slam situation and then, you you know, throw in some lighter days and stuff. So it really just depended where I was at in my career. Some days I'd hit, I mean, in the peak and everything, I'd hit twice a day, generally do some sort of off-court fitness work or gym work then you put in your physio or massage recovery so I think a lot of people probably think oh you go out and have a hit of tennis and that's sort of the end of it but it really is it takes all day to do it professionally with your training having enough recovery time in between your sessions and then obviously you know those little things that you got to do your rehab and massage and physio and stuff so it takes a lot but I always enjoyed almost any aspect of it there were certain sessions I liked more than others for sure but I knew what it was all for it wasn't hard to get out of bed every day to think okay, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to try and get better. Well, just on the subject of getting out of bed, the other part of it is the schedule that sometimes you girls and the guys confront at tournaments around the world. You know, the the rain delays, playing matches over multiple days, the late starts, backing up the next day. I mean, would you, Sam, would you happily never see another hotel room again? (laughs) Well, some were pretty nice and some were pretty average. So it depends where I was. 
Um, Fair enough. Yeah, look, I think tennis is really unique in that respect because you can have an outline of how you think the tournament's going to go or the week's going to go with a schedule and it can be completely thrown out of the water within the first couple of days depending on weather and scheduling Mm. and all that sort of thing. And I mean, even the year I won US Open, we had multiple rain delays. I think there was a couple, one or two times I ended up playing back to back, maybe ended up with an extra day off. Um, I did actually take a day off midway through the tournament because I played a really long match and I learned some stuff from the year before in that situation so didn't want to prioritize my recovery that day instead of going to the court and practicing and and then yeah the semis and final was back to back I had some super late finishes and and you know you got this idea of everything that you need to do to try and win one of those tournaments even you know down to your nutrition and your sleeping times and all of that and sometimes it's just completely not what you would ever expect you would do I I had like one night I think I had 99 cent pizza for dinner in bed because it was 2am and that was my dinner yeah. so but you just did whatever you had to do and then you try and make up for it the next day so you know very haphazard sometimes but all with a bit of you know obviously a plan but sometimes you got to be very adaptable Jeez, 99 cents inflation it's outrageous isn't it to be honest um <laughs> Now, Tell you what, they're pretty good pizzas over in New York for 99 cents. They are. No, I agree with that. No arguments here whatsoever on the pizza quality of New York. Now, with all this, I would have said to play that long and at that sort of level like you did for, for that period of time, you'd have to love it and that there's no other way. But we've obviously learned through people like Andre Agassi and others down the years that that isn't necessarily always the case. But with you, Sam, I mean, your pursuit of tennis was always born, wasn't it, from a love of the game that I'm assuming never left you and, and in fact, right here and now is probably still with you. Oh, yeah. I- Right from the first time I played tennis with my brother down at the local park, I loved it. And he he got he's eight years older than me, so he had the pleasure of looking after myself and my little brother every day after school. So, you know, he saw that in me straight away and then encouraged my parents to get me tennis lessons, which I did actually cry and not want to go to my first ever tennis lesson, but I'm glad I eventually got in the car and went. Jeez. Um, and apart from that, it was always something I wanted to do. I, you know, I watched, I remember mum and dad buying me the Andre. Agassi and Nick Volatari instructional tennis coaching video and I would just watch it all the time and you know little things like that they saw something in me to be like okay she really loved doing this and if I could be at the tennis courts every day that's where I wanted to be so it started out I started very young with that sort of desire and passion for the sport and that certainly continued throughout my career and I mean there's certainly some ups and downs where you think things are a little bit harder and oh can I do this can I stick it out but the overriding answer was always yes I can and that's exactly what I wanted to do right to the day I played my last match I loved being out there competing and and trying to obviously win but just be as good as I could be so yeah it, it was always like I said before kind of easy for me to want to go and do that because I did have that love for it. So just on that last match like is it a jolt when you stop like you did as a competitive player after this year's Australian Open I mean how has retirement sat with you in the in the months since uh to be honest since has probably been easier than the lead up um no once I made the decision the lead up to making the decision like full on was actually really hard even the year before deciding whether to stop playing singles or not that I armed an art over that process and what I wanted to do and could I keep doing it and there was a, a whole bunch of different factors that I was trying to 
way up. And I almost didn't even play the Australian Open in 2022 in singles. And sort of mid-early December, I thought, no, I want to play one more time. And did that. I'm so glad I made the decision to finish playing singles in Australia. And then ultimately, a year later, finish my whole career in Australia, in Melbourne, at, at the Australian Open. And But yeah, the lead up to it was actually, I think, harder than once I fully decided. I think I was really content with my decision once I'd done it. And then playing the matches was obviously quite emotional, especially the last one in the mixed doubles, knowing that, okay, that is the last time I'm going to shake hands on a tennis court and, mm. not, and not have this moment again. Oh, it's really hard to put into words. I, um, I, know, I can't believe the journey that I've been able to get on and dreaming as a little kid and to be able to finish here all these years later um, in front of friends and family and the Aussie fans who have supported me forever. So thank you so much. I- The support from all of you is just incredible. So thank you. It's 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 hard to think that it's over now, but um, just thank you. But you know, the waking up the next day it certainly felt a little bit strange. But ever since then, I like I haven't regretted it. I know I got everything out of my tennis that I absolutely ever possibly could have, and I was happy with when and why and how I made the decision. So yeah, it's been good. And now I don't mean to embarrass you here by any stretch, but you always looked supremely fit, strong, like ripped, as my kids would say. So the exercise regime, the attention to detail, what you ate, when you ate, sleep, and all of that, aside from the 99 cent pizzas, must have been immense. So how was that lived on in retirement for you? And was it easy just to drop it all, that way of life, or have you maintained it? How have you gone about the physical changes in your life? You know what? I'm, I thought I'd still want to get into the gym and do everything that I was sort of doing beforehand. And I think in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm so far gone now. I can't even start again. Yeah. I, I, I like to go out and still have a hit of tennis whenever possible, at least try and go once a week. If there was, I, I did do some coaching with one of the Aussie girls, Ellen Perez, back in April. I ended up hitting every day nearly for two weeks and loved it. So if I could go out and play tennis and hit with people, I could be there any day of the week. So going to the gym and all the other stuff has sort of waned off a little bit, but I've got a three-year-old to run after so yeah. I'm still up and about and on my feet but yeah I, it's actually surprised me a little bit how easy that was to kind of give it away but I know there'll come a point where I want to get back into it uh, certainly more than at least what I am right now but yeah it, it's kind of been easier on my body and it's amazing now I wake up my don't have a sore back my ankles don't hurt and I'm like oh I actually feel good at the moment <laughs> so that's actually kind of nice. Yeah, and I want to come back to family life a little a little bit later on, which is now a big part of obviously what you're doing and is super important. But you're doing some work on the other side of the microphone now, aren't you, as part of the coverage of the game? How have you, how have you found that? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I've dabbled in it a little bit, mm-hmm. even still while I was playing over the years, but just a few matches here and there during AO. So now to kind of step into that role, um, I did French Open and Wimbledon, a uh, li- little bit for US Open in the first week. So I've actually really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed watching tennis is sort of a different perspective and different way of trying to interpret what's going on rather than just watching an opponent to try and decipher their game for how I could play them. And yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun and yeah, I've, I've probably enjoyed it more than what I was potentially expecting to. So I'm glad I'm giving it a go and hopefully can get some more opportunities. You're listening to This Is Your Journey and it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. Right, we're going to retrace Sam Stos's first step towards uh, a life on the tennis court right after this. Stay with us. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Australian tennis star Sam Stoser is our guest today. So, Sam, you're born in Brisbane to parents Tony and Diane. We're talking March of 1984. What are your earliest memories of growing up in the Sunshine State? Or were they Adelaide? Because you moved when you were only little, didn't you? Yeah, we did move when I was quite young. Uh, We went to Adelaide and, yeah, mum and dad sort of started again down there. They got flooded out when we were living on the Gold Coast and kind of lost everything. So I don't know why they actually moved to Adelaide, but they did. But thankfully for me, that's where I got my first tennis racket from a neighbour for Christmas when I was eight years old. I had my first tennis lessons at Memorial Drive, which, you know, from tennis history in Adelaide's a pretty important club for uh, has been for Australian tennis, at least for South Australian players. And but yeah, I, I don't remember too much living in Queensland before we moved, except actually for part of that flood. And then Adelaide, I like I've touched on before, my first tennis lesson, bawling my eyes out. You know, I wore my Mickey Mouse T-shirt and the the old pleated netball skirt that you wore at school. And so I do remember that and going to the tennis there at Memorial Drive when the men's event was on in January and watching with my bucket of popcorn and stalking the players for their autographs and everything else. So yeah, and then we moved back to Queensland and I started getting lessons up in, on the Gold Coast again. So bits of, I guess, my early childhood I remember and others, obviously, I guess like anyone, you kind of forget. And <laughs> It's nice to have a few photos to remember those, yeah, different memories. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the flooding. That must To lose everything, it must have been so traumatic and tragic for your mum and dad. Did they, or do they, they ran delis, didn't they? A couple of delicatessens in Queensland back at this time? Uh, they actually had, well, they had the management rights to a block of units. That's right. where they got flooded. So that was their business gone and our house and then when we went to Adelaide they ran a deli and yeah started that and then back in Queensland and sorry and also a cafe that was actually really good I remember going there after school sometimes with my younger brother and the teachers from the school would you know come over and have meetings sometimes and they'd go to mum and dad's place and my younger brother and I'd play waiters and waitresses to all the teachers (laughs) and all the things that you used to do (laughs) and then moving back to Queensland they had cafes again so they were always I guess, out early, back reasonably late. And like I said before, my my older brother looked after us a lot after school, picked us up from school on his bike and, Mm. you know, really a huge support and effort from my older brother. And even then when I started playing tennis, he took me on my first overseas trip. Um, He was always really involved with especially the early parts of my career. So I was very lucky that I... I had an older brother that was old enough to be able to do those sorts of things, but then also wanted to do that for his little sister and be part of it. So I've always been very grateful to what Daniel was able to do for my tennis, especially early on. Now, just on Dan, like he's, what, eight, nine years older than you. I think he once said this, but when he was 17 and you were eight, that you could hold a rally with him. So how old were you when you thought he was out of his depth on the court? Oh, geez, I don't know. He played... He never really got lessons or anything, but he played in school, um, so school tennis, and had far more of an idea than what my parents did. They didn't even know how to score when they when I played my first tennis tournament. So yeah, I think it's absolute. 
blessing that I had Daniel because mum and dad had were absolutely clueless. So Dan at least knew how to score, but he did enter me in like my first tournament. I think he entered me in 12s, 14s and something else. And I was like nine. And now we're like, <laughs> what on earth was anyone thinking? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Hey, were you like everyone else? Like when you first stepped on the court, you know, you got the racket from the neighbour at age eight. When the game enters your life, what do you remember about it and its challenges? Like, were you like all of us? You looked there from the service line. You thought, how high is that net? How am I possibly going to get it up and over that net? Oh, sure. But I think I just always, I just I think early on, you just try and hit it as hard as you can when you're a kid. And right. then you think, okay, if I try and hit it hard, then it might go over there. And obviously there's different learning, you know, phases that you go through. And I think I had some pretty good guidance from my coaches when I was younger and how to develop, especially when we did move back to Queensland. I changed coaches because my coach at the time was having a baby and she told us to start going to Brisbane for my lessons. And mum and dad were like, really? There's nobody on the Gold Coast that you know could coach Sam and she was adamant that she thought this coach in Brisbane Ian Brady was the guy for me and so even that like two three times a week getting me up to Brisbane now for my coaching lessons or squads but Ian taught me how to do my kick serve when I was 10 or 11 obviously it wasn't kicking and doing all the things that it did once I was taller and stronger but he showed me the technique and thought there was something in my style that I was going to be able to do that you know as I got older and stronger so very grateful that I had some really good coaches along the way that saw potential in me taught me the good fundamental basic and then right from there I had after Ian I had a coach Nick Watkins who again he would pick me up from school sometimes take me to the club I'd be down there every day he was phenomenal support and we're still great friends now and yeah then moving on you know a whole bunch of other coaches that have all played their part but I think those early years the people you have around are absolutely critical and whether they're the best technical coaches or just the biggest supporters and have the belief in you, yeah. it all plays a part. Vitally important. That's amazing, isn't it? It's like that old saying, it takes, what is it? It takes a village to raise a child, but it's so true with professional athletes. Like it takes so many people to get you there and all these people I'm sure you're so thankful for. And I, and I, I don't know, like Sam, tennis probably just as much, if not more than any other sport, the talent is identified so early, isn't it? So when did you actually think in your heart of hearts if you can pick a moment or a period of time as a kid where you thought maybe I am good enough to make something out of this was there a particular moment or a even if it was a victory or a period of time I think there was little moments along the way and then you probably quickly get shut down but um, (laughs) I I remember being in my first Australian team for the under 14 World Youth Cup it was called back in the day and that was played in Jakarta I thought oh that's what I want to do like right from a really early age I said I wanted to be a professional tennis player around that time and absolutely no clue what was going to be involved or what I really had to do at that point but that was yeah 12 13 I knew that I wanted to be a tennis player. So whatever it took to get to that point. And then when I was 15, I was in the uh, Australian AP team that went to Europe, played the French Open in Wimbledon. We were away for 10 weeks. I was completely out of my depth. I was only 15 and I didn't win a match until the last tournament at Wimbledon. So 10 weeks, nine weeks I was away, didn't win a match, struggled, called home, I think two, three times a day, reverse charges to, you know, crying to mum and dad about what was going on and I can't win and blah, blah, blah. But again, something in me stuck it out because if I really wanted to come home, 
I absolutely could have, but there was something that, you know, made me stay away and stick it out. And I look back now and think that really showed me some good resilience and, you know, ways to get over a lot of adversity. And then uh, probably when I was 17 is where I really thought, okay, I can do something here. I've won a bunch of 10,000 tournaments in Japan, won a 25 in Australia, went on this roll and, um, and was sort of, yeah, that was sort of the time where mm-hmm. I thought, oh, you know, okay, I can do this and I'm going to keep going to see how, you know, wherever that takes me. Jeez, 15. I mean, there's a lot happening at that age anyway, let alone all this on top and trying to work it all out on the other side of the world in foreign places. That's a, <laughs> you grow up fast, I'd imagine. Oh, you certainly do. I mean, you just, back then it was like four or five of us girls traveling around with one coach slash yeah. manager. You certainly had to do a lot on your own and, and work things out and, yeah, stick together as much as you could. So it's a, it was a very steep learning curve, but, and at the time I absolutely hated a lot of moments. But like I said, I think that really taught me how to get through some tricky situations and then moving forward, it was like, okay, if I could stick that out and keep going, then, you know, a couple of losses here and there later on in amongst some other success that's, easier to handle. We're with Samantha Stosa on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Life on the professional tennis circuit is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is tennis Grand Slam winner and Olympian Samantha Stosa. So, Sam, let's fast forward. The year 2000, you debuted in the Australian Open. You lost in qualifying. I think two years later, you make the main draw. You do lose in the first round, but... What was it like walking out there, playing that first Grand Slam match, the crowd, the support, the stakes? Do you, can you take us back? Can you? Does it live on with you? I'm pretty sure you were very – I think I played Greta Arn. She was from Hungary. She was a pretty experienced player. and We were obviously on one of the back courts, But I do remember playing that match, and all I could think about was playing Martina Hingis in the next round if I'd won. <laughs> and talk about lessons. I was a pretty good lesson not to get too excited about what was going to happen in round two when you can't even, you know, you haven't won round one yet. And I did lose that match, but that was a very good lesson to be learned. And yeah, playing, you know, first Aussie Open was just a dream. We were, parents took all my family to the Australian Open to watch Monica Sellis and Steffi Graf when I was nine years old in the in the women's final. That was an absolute, you know, the best day ever. Then to be able to say I've played in that same tournament was phenomenal. So US Open success, which we'll obviously get to, there were quarterfinal appearances there. There were three times you were a semi-finalist at the French, but you'd play at the Australian Open more than any other slam. So I think 21 times in the main singles draw. How would you describe your relationship with Melbourne Park? I certainly had it. I mean, I had some incredible moments there and matches that really stick out as really pivotal in my career. You know, I won my first Grand Slam title there in the mixed doubles with Scott Draper in 2005. Yeah. Yeah, one match in particular, I remember playing Martina Hingis in the fourth round. can't remember what year it was, but she was one or two in the world or something at the time. It was a night match on Rod Laver Arena. I still remember that match and loving that experience playing out on that court. And then there was obviously some other years where it was really tough. I, you know, there was, I remember a loss to Xi Zhang. I think I was 6-2, 5-2 up. And 
ended mm. up losing. I mean, absolutely horrible. You don't want to go to press. You don't want to do anything afterwards. But there was lots of great moments. I won the doubles there. And like I said, lots of matches that single-handedly stick out that, you know, I'm really proud of. So I think like any tournament, there's going to be good results and bad results. Yeah. Just unfortunately, for whatever reason, in Australia, I think most people remember my bad results. There than, than yeah. Well, unfortunately, and but... I only asked because it was like you had everything there. I mean, you had fourth round twice. You had eight first round exits. There was a run of five in a row. And the tennis circuit does move so fast and you're always moving on to what's next. But I think you might have once said even, you know, if it doesn't hurt, then you're not passionate about what you do. Oh, absolutely. And it certainly wasn't through lack of trying. And, you know, not every Australian has always performed completely at their best during that time of the year. I really like to play with a few matches under my belt. Starting in in Australia wasn't always easy because obviously there's been limited tournaments in the lead up and everything else. And honestly, I much preferred the hard courts in America and the balls and the conditions playing in the States on the hard courts than what I ever did playing in Australia. So there was, you know, a few different factors maybe why I didn't get the best out of myself in January, but there were certainly moments where I did. So the way it is, unfortunately, and then, you know, if we could play on clay more often in the year, then I would have absolutely relished that as well. But, you know, that's the tennis circuit. Yeah, and I mean, you, you mentioned after losses like these, maybe you don't want to do press, and I'm sure that was the case after the, the Zheng loss that you mentioned in 2012. But, you, I mean, you, you came out there, and I think you admitted that you, you choked. And I, I think what endeared you to people was that despite these difficult times, you never lacked class. Like, there was no scandal. There was no umpire meltdowns. There was no blame, no excuses. When there may have been cause for both or all of that, you seem to always take responsibility. Yeah, I think... I think that was always sort of instilled from me from early on, like like I was saying, the importance of some good mentors and coaches early mm. on. And yeah, I kind of was always taught, you know, you give your best, you try your hardest, you win or lose, you shake hands, walk off, and that's the way it is. And there were certainly, you know, times where it was really difficult and questioning, am I doing the right things or could I play better or why did that happen? But I always knew I did everything I could in the moment and didn't try and shy away from taking that responsibility and yeah I didn't ever really want to blame someone else for what happened or anything like that so but I think that was just from you know good I guess yeah of coaches mentors like I said mm. parents it was always just the way I kind of went about things and tried to yeah do my best and if that was a bit short one day then you come back tomorrow and try and do it better yeah well said now you first found success in doubles didn't you tell us about the partnership that you formed with lisa raymond that took you to the 05 us open title the 06 french open title tell us a bit about the working and i don't know i guess the the personal relationship and the harmony and the chemistry you're able to form with lisa yeah it's an interesting start to that uh partnership so i was actually playing with an australian girl brianne stewart we made the semis of wimbledon that year and then when we were at wimbledon lisa asked me if i wanted to play the rest the year with her and I thought oh geez you know I'm playing with my friend we've just had our best result we're both now at our best rankings what do I do but I've got this other player who's been number one in the world one grand slam has all the experience and I made the very very hard decision of deciding to play with Lisa and we did not start very well at all we had three first round losses just were not gelling didn't really click. I think we we both struggled to kind of know our roles on the court. I guess in a lot of ways, I'd always sort of been more of the leader in a partnership, whereas she hadn't been that person. And then when we combined, it sort of had to be that way. And we both sort of found that hard. And I remember actually in San Diego, we were sitting down chatting and she wanted to kind of end it. 
and she wanted to play with someone else for the rest of the US summer. And I said, look, let's just stick it out. Let's give it another couple of weeks. Let's play through the US Open and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and we got to the US Open and won the title. Yes. <laughs> and then think we lost maybe one match for the rest of the year I don't know but we went I think we won four titles ended up number one in the world we were doubles team of the year that year and the next year so it didn't start out so well that it nearly all crumbled before any sort of success but yeah I I remember playing that US Open final we won the first set then we both kind of got a bit nervous I remember saying to Lisa between the second and third set I was like it's all right I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my game again now. I'm, I'm going to find it. We're, we're going to be good. And we ended up winning in three. So certainly catapulted, I guess, my career from a doubles aspect. But even at that time, I was always playing singles. I was still top 40, touching 30 in the world for a lot of that. But doing so well in doubles, sometimes you'd miss qualifying of the next week in singles. And yeah, it was kind of tough to have that balance. But I certainly don't regret having that double success early on in my career because it taught me how to play under pressure, mm. how to work in a team. You know, you're playing on the biggest courts in the world, trying to win titles. Obviously, financially, it helped a lot in that time of my career. So it was, yeah, a big decision to do that. But in the end, it paid off. Yeah. So I think by mid-2007, you'd actually won 22 pro doubles titles and you and Lisa were obviously winning all over the world. But you were starting to feel lethargic, maybe at Wimbledon, weren't you? Physically, you're off. When did you know something was wrong and, and what was wrong? Well, yeah, it was Wimbledon. Sort of, I feel like a few days into the event, I yep. started feeling really fatigued. I had all this swelling in my glands. I had this rash all over me. Actually, the tournament doctors and physios, I obviously was speaking to them. They almost actually pulled me out of the event because they didn't know if I had something really contagious that I could be spreading to the rest of the event. Yeah, I, I kept playing, but I'd be asleep in the locker room before my matches and just, I don't know how, but somehow at semis or the final or something of the mix or the semis or the doubles or something that year, that's bad memory. But we kind of got through and then I went home and had more tests done. They thought maybe I had rubella. So I took a whole bunch of weeks off. Still well, wasn't feeling great, but a lot of those symptoms had sort of gone away, but I was just really fatigued and underdone and we thought maybe I've just lost a lot of fitness or something so I thought okay I'll I'll go back to the States I'll play US Open not really any lead up or anything and I remember playing my first round there and it was three or four games into the first set and I was like there's no way I can win this match I was absolutely cactus yeah and I kind of then lost the match trained through the rest of the tournament with my coach and then you know a week later I ended up in hospital with uh, chest pains and and different things going on one night eventually flew back to Tampa where I was based at the time and got this pounding headache and next day long story short ended up in two different hospitals then they told me I had viral meningitis and from there that's where we were actually able to work out what had been going on for these last few months I saw infectious disease specialist over there and about five weeks after the meningitis he diagnosed me with Lyme disease and so I was out of the game for 10, 11 months and started again. It was just a few weeks actually before the French Open the following year. So no, it must have been later than that because I was out for so long. But yeah, that was a, a real interesting time. I couldn't come back to Australia because I wasn't allowed to fly. I had to, I did all the, you know, recovery. I was on IV antibiotics for four weeks, other oral antibiotics for another two to four weeks. Um, and I just had to start my training really, really slowly. It literally was a 20 minute walk to start my training again and even then my heart rate was at like 120 so but I did have really good support from the and guidance from the physios at the WPA the doctor that I was seeing and 
yeah, followed everything they said because I didn't want to backtrack and, you know, um, fall ill again. So did all that and touch wood, I've been pretty good ever since. But I'd never even heard of Lyme disease at that time. And so I learned a lot. Yeah. Um, in those few months. And I imagine it changes your approach. We might get to that in a minute. Often when something gets taken away, you know, suddenly and for a fair period of time, it can change the way you go about it. But uh, you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. As I touched on, there's much more to come with Sam Stosa after this. Stick around. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And we're joined today by Aussie tennis star Samantha Stosa. So, Sam, I suppose the singles breakthroughs really started to come in 2009, highlighted by... Uh, that year's run to the semis at the French. But the most glorious day, I'm sure, was the US Open final of 2011. You become the first Aussie female, of course, since Yvonne Gulligan Cawley in 1980 to taste Grand Slam success. How vivid are the memories? <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty vivid still. There's a few moments of that day that I wish I could uh, go back and relive because it's all a bit of a blur. But then others, I remember it like yesterday, like, match point the match point that i lost actually prior then the match point that i won obviously hitting that forehand it was third time lucky and at the age of 27 sam stosa is a grand slam champion yeah i think i had a one of my best days so I, I guess i'm very fortunate to have been able to do it on this stage in new york I remember climbing up into the stands, you know, hugging my team. Uh, I won't repeat what my manager said, but we were all very, very excited. And, yeah, certainly moments of that that are, you know, clear as anything. So it was an absolute dream come true to win a title like that. One thing or several things that are often overlooked with this, I reckon, is the fact that you were walking straight into the lines down here. I mean, you're facing none other than US sporting hero Serena Williams in her home tournament in New York on the 10-year anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now, Serena hasn't lost a set all tournament, and then you come along against all the odds, seemingly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, there was no doubt it was all Serena that tournament, and I guess my real sort of tenacity and desire to do well really came out, because that whole tournament, I remember you're at their courts or whatever, you're watching tennis, you're surrounded by tennis, you go home to your hotel room, I turn the tennis on. You watch it all day, all night, and it, it was all about Serena, and rightly so. She's arguably the greatest player ever. So I sort of, obviously, you watch all of that, and as I was going through the draw, I was feeling pretty good. And once I found myself in the final against her, I just had this sensation that I knew I was going to win the next day. I said it to my team uh, that night when we all got back to the hotel the, after winning the semi-final, and I just, yeah, I don't know, I, I just knew that I was going to be able to win. She beat me a few weeks before in the final of Toronto, and, yeah, my coach and I, we had obviously really good conversation about what to do, game plan, little tweaks, do this, do that. And, yeah, I just felt good, confident, and it was a huge day. I still remember seeing part of the you know, performance before we even walked out of the court from Queen Latifah. Huge day in America, obviously, for 
very sad and unfortunate reason. But yeah, that was my time, I guess. So, so yeah, just just on the night before that you touched on there with your coach. So, were you bold enough to call it? Did you actually say the words, oh, "I'm going to win tomorrow"? I said I was going to be a party pooper right. because I knew everyone wanted Serena to win. Yeah, that's amazing because, like, your U.S. Open that year, you'd been you'd been through so much. Like, you broke. I think it's since been. Superseded, but the then tournament record yeah. for the longest match. I think that was was that Petrova in the third round, and then yeah, that was that one. Then we had the longest tie break. Yeah, Kirilenko against Kirilenko. Yeah, you'd been in the trenches semi-final, here. I, yeah, I beat the number two player in the world in the semi final. We, you know, never even gets remotely remembered because I beat Serena in the next round. But yeah, I had certainly had some big matches throughout that whole tournament, and yeah, set a couple of records, which was nice for a little while. But yeah, I just I, I actually always enjoyed playing Serena. There was times where I didn't love it so much where she absolutely thrashed me, but there was, I don't know, I think my game sort of matched up reasonably well to her and Mm. to know that I beat her in two different Grand Slams, obviously the final US, I beat her at the French Open prior to that as well. And one other time, I don't know, I just knew that I don't think she loved playing me with my game. I think there were certain things I could do to her that made her feel uncomfortable. And I just knew if I was able to play the way I knew I could against her and do, you know, certain things well. And obviously you got to handle the moment and all of that, which I did. Then I just I knew that I would have a shot. Now, just on handling the moment here, Sam, I have to ask you this because in this final at your end, you witnessed the iconic, infamous player-umpire exchange too that I suppose would have threatened to distract you. I mean, the famous hindrance argument between Serena and the chair umpire, Eva Azdaraki, mm-hmm. and, and obviously Serena shouting out, come on before you even looked to get across it to play a shot. Wow. Well, nothing for me but as directly there, but that was very noisy from just a shot. Yeah. You can't yell before your opponent even finished the point. She's having a word now. Giving the point away. I think she's right. Did call out before the point was over, and you can't in no. the middle of the point. Just screamed with a score, and it was a heck of a shot, a most venomous shot, but you can't shout out in the rally. She feels very wrong, but the ball, and the umpire's got it right. What were you thinking when it was all going down on court like it was? Oh, to be honest, I didn't know what to do. And I looked up at my player box and my manager was signaling, get down the other end, get down the other end. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of hovered for a little bit and then changed ends. And I mean, to be that whole first set, that was the first game of the second set, I think. The whole first set, the crowd was sort of a bit more quiet, obviously, because they wanted Serena to be winning and she wasn't winning. So there wasn't a whole lot for them to be cheering about. And then at that point on, they really, the crowd really got involved. And, you know, I really don't think it was against me. I think it was just very pro Serena. They wanted her to get into the match, which is absolutely fair enough. There was certainly a couple of games from that point on where I felt tiny, tiny, small on that huge court, sort of just was hanging on by thread for a couple of moments. I knew I had to try and stay close on the scoreboard because things could flip at any moment and Serena's shown time and time again through her career that she could be down and seemingly out something happens she awakes and then before you know it you've lost the match so I knew that next little period was super important for me and I actually there was one exchange I think it was a 2-1 we both ended up at the net in a bit of a volley exchange and I ended up hitting a volley winner past her 
And as I was turning around out of the corner of my eye, I saw her clap on her racket my shot. And I don't know why, but seeing her do that actually just really settled me. And from then on, I was fine again. And I I mean, I I don't know why. I think it was then because all of a sudden I thought, she doesn't hate me. It's not (laughs) about me, what happened, you know? And that seemed to be okay with me then. So then I was like, oh, cool. So I settled down, got back to playing the way I was. Not that I really dipped away, but kind of got back on top. And yeah, that moment, yeah, was huge. I don't who knows when or what would have happened if I didn't see that. But that was a huge point and a huge moment that I remember like yesterday happening. But with all the stuff going on with her, with the umpire and the change of ends and all of that, to be honest, so loud on the court. I didn't even hear any of that. I didn't even know she was yelling at the umpire for those next couple of changeovers. So yeah, that was maybe a good thing too, but... That court is so loud, just with noise. I didn't even realise till obviously watching the replay what was said. Yeah, geez, what an epic blow up, wasn't it? Um, now, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, when Ellie and Tom, I've just got to ask you about the French Open. I mean, I'm not sure if you're one that you know you carry any regrets with you. You know, regret sort of person, but. And you would never say you could have easily won one. But, I mean, the semi-final loss in 2009 to the eventual champ, Kuznetsova, and then in 2010 when you came in, seeded seventh. And, and look, the, the players that you left in your wake en route to the final, uh, Ann and Serena again, Jankovic, mm-hmm. and then the upset to Francesca, 6-4, 7-6. I mean, did this one sit on with you for a while or are you able to wipe it clean? No, it, it really sat on for a while. It was, yeah. That was hard. Even the, the year before playing Kuznetsova, Actually really proud of the way I played everything because that was totally new territory for me at that point in time. And I still remember she hit this amazing backhand down the line winner off one of my kick serves to break serve in the third set. And that was the difference. I don't know if I fully, fully believed that I could be in the French Open final at that point. But after that match, I did. And then, the, yeah, the year after having those wins that I had, then being in the final, I beaten Skivone time and time before. Uh, she'd also beaten me, but I actually beat her in the first round of the French the year before. <laughs> so I'd had success against her there. Looking back, I actually don't think I had a bad performance. I think she just handled the moment and played an incredible match. Mm. And she played better than me in the important times during that match, which now I can look back and think, okay, that's all right. But at the time, I was absolutely devastated. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't see a point of it. I think my trophy's still at mum and dad's house. I don't even have the trophy. (laughs) They kept trying to give it back to me, but I'm like, no, it's fine. But yeah, it wasn't until going back to the French Open the next year, actually, in the lead up to the event, you've you know, you're eating lunch in the player restaurant cafes and they've got all the TVs going, the kind of replays from the years before. And I sat down to eat my lunch and that match came on and I was kind of forced to see it and watch it and deal with it right then and there. Wow. And that's kind of where I thought, okay, it's actually not as bad as what I thought it was. You know, looking back, maybe if I didn't go through that, who knows if I would have won the US Open the year later in Mm. that situation because it was a, a... big learning curve. I knew I didn't want to feel like that again, having an opportunity to win a Grand Slam. And a thousand percent, it helped me go into that next Grand Slam final. Obviously, I would have loved to win the French. I mean, honestly, probably my best performed Grand Slam, even more than the US Open. But 
yeah, unfortunately never quite got there with that one. Sam Stosa, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, you do often hear mind coaches nowadays and sports psychs talk about how, you know, pressure is a privilege, that risking failure is the key component en route to success. So to think that you did that for so long, often under intense scrutiny, intense pressure, and you had that ultimate success along the way is a massive part of your journey. So well done on everything you achieved, which was plenty. And thanks for sharing your story with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online, of course, tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.